copy of Scripture this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. This morning. Titled this message, What Child Is This? Tomorrow is Christmas morning. And I'm sure that many of you have fond memories of Christmas, maybe family traditions and different Christmas traditions that you went through that you've carried out for Christmas time. It's a time of year where people are supposed to be happy and uh, filled with joy. It's a time of year when there is laughter and there is playing. It's a time of year when we typically eat way too much food, and uh, that's what we do. However, if we get right down to it, we think of Christmas, and we realize that families can be complicated. For instance, one of my Christmas memories involved my dad quitting his job and going out and getting drunk and coming home and putting giant candy canes on the TV and thinking everything would be okay. It involves my mom taking the Christmas tree and throwing it out of the house and saying, I guess we won't have Christmas then. And then a church group showing up at our home and bringing us Christmas presents that were some hand-me-downs and that sort of thing, but they were presents nonetheless, presents that we wouldn't have had. Some of the tensions and losses people have experienced are not easy to bury beneath the veneer of Christmas. It does not matter how hard we try, for some Christmas time is memories of heartaches. It's memories of family feuds. It's Christmas is when they hurt the most in their life. And we can't hide it behind tinsel or presents. For some, Christmas time unmasks the mess of our life. And today I want to look at the very first book of the New Testament the Gospel of Matthew, and if you follow along, you will notice that as we look at these verses, they seem really kind of dull. You probably would ask, why in the world would someone preach a message for Christmas over these verses? I mean, look at how Matthew starts it. He starts the book in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That really sounds super exciting, doesn't it? And then we will have 16 verses of names. And while that's not exciting to us, it was critical to the first century Jewish leaders of the day, which is who Matthew is writing this book to, because for them, who your family was gave an indication of who you were, whose son you were was important as people were trying to decide who you are and how important you really are. And you would think that since this is the case, this lineage of Jesus would be filled with all kinds of famous people. But just like our families, the truth is that Jesus' family tree is not all that pretty. Matthew lays out the family tree of Jesus and we can see the flaws. Matthew wants to make it clear that Jesus This baby born king came into the world not for the wise 
or the good or the smart or those that have their act all together. The fact is that Jesus came into this broken world for screwed up sinners just like you and I. So as we read through this passage, even though they are not exciting verses, they will tell us the story. They're still the Word of God. And so this morning, before we read this, I just want to take just a moment and pray uh, about this passage. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is before us this morning. And I would ask that You would help us to understand it, comprehend it, that we will see the truth in this passage of Scripture of who Jesus is, And in them, if we do not know Jesus, that today Jesus would be revealed to us. And if we do know him, that that today there'd be something that we draw this passage that we can take home with us and apply to our life. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 1, beginning with verse 1, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Iliad, and Iliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now as we read this, you'll see that it's broken into three chunks, and each chunk consists of 14 generations, which he says. And so We don't have a comprehensive list of Jesus' ancestors. Otherwise, the list would be much longer. 
Instead, Matthew is being selective, and he does this to make a point. Because in Matthew's list, we see the great and the good as well as the least and the nobodies. And so what I want us to see this morning is is really the title of the sermon, What Child Is This? And first, we must notice this, that he is a child of promise. He's a child of promise. Matthew in verse 1 states, The genealogy is that of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He wants the readers to know that Jesus Christ is the legal heir to the throne of David. That is not because man is merely curious or to give people reason to boast. Matthew is tracking the roots of Christ to prove that he is indeed the promised Messiah. For him to be the child of promise, two things had to be true. Thing number one, he had to be a descendant of David. Matthew uses the name of King David 17 times, which is more than any other book in the New Testament. God gave the promise that the Messiah would come from the Davidic line. The Jews believed that promise the promises of God, and so Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus is indeed the promised one. Jesus, when it seemed that there would be no heir to occupy the promised throne, Jesus, the son of David, the promised Messiah, was born. Also, I don't know if you caught it or not, but Matthew is tracing Jesus' legal right to the throne And he's doing it through Joseph. Up until verse 16, he was saying, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so the father of so-and-so. But when he comes to Joseph, he changes the language. And he says, Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. The point is to show that Joseph is not the physical father of Jesus. If Jesus were the physical descendant of Joseph, he would be barred from the throne of David by a curse on Jeconiah. But Jesus is not the physical descendant of Jeconiah, but he is the legal descendant and therefore qualifies as the legitimate son of David and is the Messiah. Secondly, the Messiah not only needed to be uh, a descendant of David, but The Messiah needed to be a descendant of Abraham. The Messiah had to be a descendant of Abraham because it was a nationality issue. An issue of God's divine promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God gives that promise. It was with Abraham that God made the covenant to set Israel apart, that they would be holy. All of Israel took pride in being Descendants of Abraham. We probably sung that song in Sunday school, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. However, Jesus brings the promise of Abraham to a fullness when he commands his disciples to preach the gospel to what? All nations. And God is moving all of history to fulfill his promise of Abraham. And his promise to David. So let's understand what Matthew's doing. He is making remarkable claims by telling his readers that this baby that was laid in a manger was indeed their long-awaited Messiah. 
He was the son of Abraham and the son of the royal tribe of Judah. He is the direct heir of David, who was Israel's greatest king. From the Jewish perspective, this part of his pedigree was perfect. Jesus is indeed the child of promise, but not so fast. Because not only is Jesus the child of promise, but he is also the child of prostitutes and sinners. This is the part of the family tree that people skip over, right? Do you have somebody like in your family, like if you're tracing back, you just kind of skip over them? Or you'd say their name real fast, kind of mumbled like, you know, so nobody would hear it. That's these people that Matthew includes in the genealogy. Look at who Matthew mentions. Tamar, the pagan. Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, the Moabite. And Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. Before we look at these women, let's be clear that Jesus has a messed up family tree. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob was a cheater. Judah, a fornicator. David was an adulterer. Solomon was a polygamist. Manasseh was the evilest king Israel ever had. And on and on we could go. This is not some grand list of people of the, of the best of the best. That's not what it is. All these men had flaws. And some were so flawed that it is impossible to see their good points. We can't miss it though because even in this messed up family tree, the Son of God steps into the pages human history. I want to focus just a few minutes on these women mentioned here. First of all, Tamar. We'd find Tamar's story back in Genesis chapter 38. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham. Judah had a son who he named Ur, who married a Gentile woman named Tamar. Ur was such a wicked man that God killed him. And Judah then ordered Ur's brother, Onan, to do his brotherly duty, which is very common at the time, but by marrying Tamar. So Onan was happy to sleep with Tamar, but refused to get her pregnant. He too suddenly dies, leaving Tamar both without a husband and without any children. So she had a twin curse on her. I mean, you were cursed at that time. No husband, no children. Eventually, Judah's wife dies. Tamar, because she was impatient and unwilling to wait for God to supply her need, she hatches up a little scheme to cause her father-in-law, Judah, to sleep with her. And her plan was simple. She's going to dress up like a prostitute. She's going to seduce Judah into sleeping with her. And it's a success. She does it. And she succeeds. And she becomes pregnant. And she gives birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Judah still didn't know the identity of the prostitute. And we found out that Tamar was pregnant. He, he had no idea. And so he ordered that she be put to death. However, Tamar then reveals to Judah that he was grandpa daddy. He's both. And so he cancels the death sentence. Says, okay, well, I can't kill her then. Think of this story. I mean, it's greed. 
and deception and illegitimacy and prostitution and sexual lust and a hint of incest. You cannot by any stretch of the imagination make Tamar look right because what she did was evil. It was wrong. It was immoral. The fact that she is even included in the line of the Messiah is a strong message to everybody everywhere about the grace of God. She didn't deserve to be in the lineage of of Christ, but here she is. How about Rahab? Most of us know about Rahab. If we read the Old Testament, we'd know her as Rahab the prostitute or harlot. Her name alone means pride, insolence, and savagery. What a great name. We find out about her in Joshua chapter 1 and 2. She was a Canaanite. People who were great enemies of God and his people. Vocationally, she was a prostitute, but it's best known for being a good liar. And so here she is, a prostitute, a Canaanite, and a liar. Surely she doesn't have much chance of making the list. However, her story is tied to a more extensive story, which is Joshua's conquest of Jericho. When Joshua sent spies into the city, Rahab hid them in her house in exchange for safe passage out of the city. They promised to spare her and her household when the invasion took place. All she had to do was hang a scarlet cord from her window so the Israelites could identify her house. She agrees. She hid the spies, and when the king of Jericho sent messages uh, asking her to bring out the men, she lied, because she's good at that, and uh, she lies to the king and says they already left the city. They were hiding on the roof. She let them out of the window with a rope, after which they returned to Joshua. Don't miss it. It's a great story. But Rahab was still a harlot, who was a liar. She was still a woman of faith. In fact, it says so in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33, which we'll get to uh, eventually in our study through Hebrews. By faith, Rahab. She was a believer. And her lie was motivated by, motivated by faith. When the invasion came, she was spared and in the course of time became the great-great-grandmother of King David. A harlot, a Canaanite, and a liar. Also a woman of faith. She made the list. She's a part of Jesus' family tree. What about Ruth? We can't say anything bad about Ruth, surely. She was a Moabite. An entire race of people who came about through incest. We can look to Genesis chapter 9 to find out about Ruth. This is where we find the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And on that dreadful day, Lot escaped Sodom and his wife and two Daughters are with him and his wife. What she do? She turns around and looks when she was told not to, and she turns into a pillar of salt. And Lot has his daughters uh, with him, and they find a refuge in a cave. And his daughters evidently had been severely affected by Sodom, which was a wicked, wicked city full of all kinds of sexual sin. And because uh, his daughters, what do they do? They, they were so affected by Sodom, they conspire to lure their father into sleeping with them. On successive nights, they get Lot drunk, and they slept with him. Both sisters get pregnant, gave birth to sons, one named Moab, the other named Ammon. 
The two boys, born of incest, grew up to found nations and would eventually become both incredibly evil as well as bitter enemies of Israel. The Jews hated the Moabites and the Ammonites and wanted nothing to do with them. The book of Ruth tells of a love that takes place between Ruth, the Moabite, and Boaz, an Israelite. Their relationship made no sense. But guess what? God had a plan. And they're brought together in marriage. And they had a son. They named Obed. Who had a son. Named Jesse. Who had a son. Named David. Making Ruth David's great grandmother. And so we have a person from the hated nation of Moab. Entering into the line of the Messiah. What about Bathsheba? She's so bad her name's not even mentioned in here. Instead, did you see it? She's referred to as Uriah, the Hittite's wife. Uriah went off to battle while David remained safe at home. David strolling on his rooftop one day for whatever reason. He looks down. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He's so taken back by the beauty of this woman that he has her brought into his palace where he seduced her and she later informed David that she's pregnant. After a botched attempt to cover up the scandal, David conspired to abandon her husband on the front line so that he would be murdered by the enemy. David's plan was successful and Bathsheba The adulteress became the wife of King David and the mother of King Solomon. This scandal includes lying, a royal cover-up, and ultimately murder. As a result, the child conceived that night, died soon after birth, and David's family and his empire begins to crumble. There's dirt all over the episode, but don't miss the main point. Bathsheba made the list. Her name's not there. But she is mentioned nonetheless. Think about it, church. Tamar, incest, immorality, feigned prostitution, a Gentile, Rahab, harlotry, lying, deception, a Canaanite, Ruth, a woman from Moab, a nation born out of incest, hated by the Israelites, Bathsheba, a woman who commits adultery, four unlikely women, three are Gentiles, three are involved in some form of sexual immorality, two are involved in prostitution, one is an adulteress, all four are in the line that leads to Jesus Christ. Why would God include women like that in his list? It's not just the women. Think about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. Jesus was a child of prostitutes and sinners. It's just there's no other way around it. That's that's in his lineage. That's in his family tree. Which leads me to this. Jesus was a child of providence displaying God's sovereign grace to sinners. You know, as you look through the genealogy, I'm not sure if you notice or not, but verses 2 through 6 take us from Abraham to King David. Then verses 7 through 11 take us from David to the time of the enemy's evasion, which resulted in the deportation of the people to Babylon. That's what it says. It gives us that little verse in there that they were deported to Babylon. Now, uh, to the entire world, 
it would seem as though the line of David at that deportation to Babylon, that the line of David had been snuffed out, and now the promise of the Messiah would never happen because they're deported to Babylon. Think about the people there. They're shipped off to Babylon. They are far from their land. They're in the midst of a pagan culture. They are now having to be obedient to pagan laws. And yet we read this account from Matthew. And it's not just some boring list of names. Instead, it's a list of God's providence. Because in it we see how God perseveres and preserves a family by His providence. We know that God is telling the story. We know that God protects what is His to bring about the conclusion that He wants to bring about. This one family protected. They eventually come back from Babylonian captivity under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They settle in the land of Judah. And they disappear from political and cultural prominence. But when we read God's word, it is always leading us eventually to the salvation that's promised through his son, Jesus Christ. And the genealogy is no different. The goal is that thousands of years later, we would see the wonder of salvation, which is why we see Mary and Joseph, who belong to the remnants of the Davidic line, come onto the scene out of obscurity. And by the time we get to the birth of Jesus, there's nothing remarkable about Mary and Joseph. There's nothing noteworthy about them. There's nothing to show that they are from the line of David other than a family tree. Yet when we get down to verse 16, we see that it's to this obscure family that one is born who is called the Christ. And that word Christ is not a name. His name wasn't, first name wasn't Jesus and last name Christ. It's not a name. That word Christ is a title. It's the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. The point is that when war came and drove the people out into Babylonian captivity, this family was preserved by the providence of God. And when it looked like they would be wiped off the face of this earth, this family was sustained by the providence of God. Until one night, when the virgin delivered her child, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him in the inn. That night, in obscurity, in a little town in Bethlehem, in a stable, God kept His promise. And that's what Matthew's saying. God kept His promise. That night, God's grace was clearly evident in the birth of his son. That night, there was born a child of providence displaying God's sovereign grace to sinners. What do we mean by God's sovereign grace? What I'm I'm saying is this, that God gives his unmerited favor on whomever he so chooses 
to give it to. And I'm saying that we see this played out for us in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I believe we see this played out in two very specific ways. One, that God saves us by His sovereign grace. If we can't see this in the genealogy, then we're not looking. All throughout the Scriptures even, we see that God saves us solely by His sovereign grace. One looks at this list of people, and and we see evil lurking around every corner. We see kings that are filled with evil. We see men and women filled with sin. We Those that, that some would even consider heroes of the faith, Abraham, who, as I said er, earlier, was a polygamous patriarch who lied about his wife, not just once, but twice. And David, the adulterer and murderer, and Tamar, who disguised herself as that prostitute and slept with her father-in-law to get pregnant. And Rahab, the Canaanite harlot, who was excluded from God's covenant people, but believed in the God of the Hebrews. And Ruth, the Moabite, who was considered a Gentile, considered unclean and secluded from the people of God. Bathsheba commits a sin of adultery. And it blows my mind. The people that are in the lineage of Jesus. The people that who even hated God. And led other people to hate God. And we see that Jesus did not come because Israel was so righteous. Jesus didn't come because Israel was so deserving. He came despite who they were, despite their exceedingly sinfulness. We see this all throughout Scripture, the sovereign grace of God coming to redeem sinful man. And the good news is that God saves sinners. If you failed miserably in your life, God sent a Savior for you. Maybe you look at your life and you look at your family tree and you think, I'm the worst person in my family tree. I'm the one everybody skips over. I'm the bad person in my lineage. Then the genealogy of Jesus invites you to come to Jesus and ask Him to save you from your sins. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and you're in the midst of serious sin in your life, the genealogy of Jesus invites you to turn back to Christ and experience His forgiveness and walk with Him again. In this child, we see God's sovereign grace to save sinners. But I don't want you to miss this because we also see this, the sinful responsibility of man. As we look down through this list, we see the evil people living in rebellion to God, and yet they're still responsible for their sin. We do not see it merely negated, yet in the midst of their rebellion, God is always at work. Now don't miss this. At no point are these kings, these men, these women, these families outside the sovereign control of God. They're not outside His sovereign control. In this list are people running from God, people disobeying God, people going their own way, walking away from God, and they're responsible for that. But yet at the same time, God 
is sovereignly ordaining every single bit of it to bring about the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor, how can you explain such a thing? I can't. I can't explain a sovereign God working through sinful men and women. It's a mystery. I know it happens. I know I can look at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and see that it was sovereignly ordained by God for His Son to die, and yet He still held the evil men responsible who crucified His Son. I can't explain it. Just know it's true. Think of the women we've talked about. God's giving us a message that is very clear. Jesus came for and through the morally outcast of the day. These women involved in sexual sin, the incest, the prostitution that was going on. Yet they're in the line of Jesus. Matthew could have at least went through and weeded out all these filthy reprobates and made the lineage look better. Surely there were other women that he could have picked from. Why are these names here? Why are they part of the line of Christ? I love how David Platt puts it. For the same reason that you and I are included in the line from Christ. Solely by the sovereign grace of God. No church, but by the grace of God. I am a filthy wretch condemned to an eternal hell. Were it not for His grace, God, praise God, that He delights in saving the immoral. Praise God that He delights in saving the sinful outcast. Praise God. Think about who it is that's writing this. It's Matthew, the tax collector. He made a living ripping off his fellow Jewish citizens. Read through the book of Matthew. And then when you get to Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is going to Matthew's house for a party. And guess what? Matthew has no one to invite but a bunch of immoral people. This is a dude that is writing the gospel of Matthew. But that's what's so great about the gospel. Because God saves not based upon merit, not based upon what you can do, but God saves based on His grace and mercy. <coughs> it is solely by His sovereign grace. <coughs> Praise God that He saves based on His mercy and His grace. Because if He didn't, every single one of us would be damned. The heart of the Christmas message is this. We look at this baby born in a manger and oh, you know, we think it's so cute and that sort of thing. The heart of the Christmas message is that God is on a divine rescue mission. And that is why Jesus was born. 
And as Matthew's gospel will go on to explain, that is why Jesus will die. He was born to accomplish the mission, and he dies to accomplish the mission, the rescue mission that God is on. At the heart of this is that Jesus was born for those who are messed up and guilty and broken And that ultimately Jesus died for us. And even though he was born a king, he was rejected and condemned and an outcast. Not because there was something wrong with him, but or not because he was sinful, but because you and I are sinful. And he embraced that condemnation and he took the rejection that you and I deserved. And on that cross, he gave himself so that we may be forgiven. That is the wonder of Christmas. The child born king, this babe in Bethlehem, this child of promise, the child of prostitutes and sinners, the child of providence came as a savior for everyone who receives him. Jesus came for the outcast, for the ethnically diverse. He came so that we could experience his grace. How Will you respond? How will you respond? When looking through this list of names and seeing that we have the good news that Jesus descended from Abraham and from David and that he is the child of promise and that this is all about Jesus Christ, when we're confronted with the fact that Jesus is the child of prostitutes and sinners and God's grace is available to the outside, outsider, when seeing that God's grace is entirely sovereign, how will you respond? <clears throat> One of three ways. You'll reject. We could see all the evidence that's stacked up here. We can hear the message. And I can do my best to articulate what we see in the lineage of Jesus. And you could be just like the religious leaders of the day. And you could reject it all and say, eh, it's a fairy tale. Whether you realize it or not, you need to be rescued. And that's what is offered. A rescue. You know, if you were drowning in the water and I attempted to rescue you, I don't think you'd just say, oh, that's right. I don't realize I'm drowning. You need a rescue. Will you reject the rescue plan? If you receive him, he comes into your life and makes you new. Throughout the Gospels, we see attacks on the character of Jesus, attacks against his claim of who he said he was. But he is exactly who he claimed to be. Will you pridefully reject Jesus, ignoring the abundance of evidence? Or will you receive him? Secondly, maybe you simply observe. And if I'm really honest, I believe that this is where most most church attendees are at. They're fine observing the claims of Jesus. They are fine looking at the babe in the manger and even celebrating his coming to earth. 
they're fine coming to church sometimes, and maybe they come often. They're good with observing Jesus and toying with Him and even associating with Him and perhaps doing things in His name. They said a prayer once and they asked Jesus into their heart and it was meaningless, but they did it anyway. They may, they may even go to church every once in a while or perhaps they even serve in a church on a consistent basis, but they just observe. They don't really know Jesus. There are a lot of these people. In fact, Jesus says, there will be many people saying, look at all the things I've done. Look at what I've done in your name, Jesus. Look at all these great accomplishments. And he says, I will look at them and tell them I never knew you. And I'm afraid that's the majority of the churches today. They just observe Jesus. They observe him. You know, kind of like we observe holidays. They observe Jesus. So will you simply observe Jesus? Thirdly, you will follow. That's what the disciples did. They unconditionally followed Jesus. Let me just say, church, we live in a day when nominal Christianity is the norm. This is what you do. It doesn't matter how, how strong of a Christian you are. You just, you just do what you do. You do you. That's kind of the saying. There's no commitment to Christ. We just do our own thing. Committed to ourself more than anything. We have this humanistic view of Christianity. Will you rise up and say to Jesus, you are the king? And because you are the king, there are no conditions to my obedience. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you lead. I will do whatever you ask. I will give whatever you tell me to give, and I will abandon all that I am and all that I have in order to follow you if that's what it takes. Because you are the king, and you are worthy of nothing less. That is at the heart of following King Jesus and being a citizen of his kingdom. Will you follow. This Christmas, what's it going to be? You going to reject? Eh, I just like getting presents. You going to observe? I, I observe the holiday of Christmas. I have a good time. I know it's about Jesus' birth. Yada, yada, yada. I just do the same thing I ever do. You're going to follow. What's it going to be? The decision's near court. In a moment, we're going to sing a song. You're standing down front. If you'd like to respond to the message this morning, I want to give you that opportunity. You don't have to. You can respond. Maybe you need to pray about something. You can do that in your pew. If you need prayer, I'll pray with you. You can pray on your own. You can wait and talk to me after the service. But I want to give you that opportunity to respond. Maybe today you'd say, I need to follow. I need to follow. I'm not doing that. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to receive Christ for the first time. I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. Let's close with prayer.